left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. I keep hearing people say it's going to offset the gain. No, that's not what it's doing. It's actually offsetting your ordinary income, whichever is the highest taxed income you have. It offsets your ordinary income, and then you pay capital gain on the gain. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy, not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. Hi, I'm Kenny Wolf. You're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm very excited today to have Tom Wheelwright with us. He's a CPA, founder, and CEO of WealthAbility and the best-selling author of Tax-Free Wealth. He's a leading wealth and tax expert, global speaker, and entrepreneur. Tom is best known for making taxes fun, easy, and understandable, and specializes in helping entrepreneurs and investors build wealth through practical and strategic ways that permanently reduce taxes and all left fielders know of him because he's very popular in the real estate crowd and always has great information. I am so pleased to have you, Tom. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Jim. It is absolutely a pleasure to be here with you. Great. And, and the way I like to start out, and again, people know your story a little bit, but can you tell us how you became the tax guy for real estate investors? Where's that journey started and how'd you get to where you are? It actually started when I was working for my mother who was the controller for my dad's printing company in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I started when I was about 12 and started doing bookkeeping. And I just liked numbers. And then I decided I liked law. And accounting tax is a really good combination of law and accounting. And when I graduated from the University of Utah, I decided I didn't want to spend my life hanging around lawyers. So I figured I'd go get a master's of tax, which is what I did from the University of Texas. From there, I spent seven years with Ernst & Young, uh, including three years in the National Tax Group in Washington, D.C. I spent four years as the in-house tax advisor for a Fortune 1000 company specializing in real estate. They actually hired me because they just bought a real estate development company and they need a real estate specialist. And that was my specialty. And then I spent 14 years as an adjunct professor in the Master's of Tax program at Arizona State University and 25 years building, buying, selling CPA firms. And 
then for the last 15 years or so, I've spent a lot of time on the road with Mr. Robert Kiyosaki of Rich Dad Poor Dad fame. Every real estate investor knows his name. He and I talk regularly, at least two or three times a week. And he'll tell you he's uh, been a client of mine for almost for 20 years now. He's been a client. That's how I met him, actually, was uh, when he became a client. Then I got to know him and we both love education. We both love financial education. And it's it's just been a, a great, great relationship since then. And now we built a network of CPAs around the country. We have about 60 CPA firms around the country, members on our WealthAbility CPA network. And why the focus on real estate when you're doing the tax? I mean, you're, you're definitely in the real estate community and you deal with a lot of real estate people. Why, why the focus on real estate? So my technical expertise is partnerships. And partnerships really are going to, you know, all real estate is in partnerships, right? It's an LLC, typically taxes a partnership or a limited partnership. And so it's just a natural fit for somebody who loves uh, partnerships. I love partnerships because they don't have a whole lot of rules and I don't like rules. So (laughs) I figure it's better if you don't have rules than if you do have rules. Uh, A lot of people prefer rules. I prefer not having rules. And that's probably because I'm the youngest of six kids, but Real estate just was just a natural thing. So I ended up doing a lot of natural resources, so a lot of oil and gas, and a lot of real estate. Well, it, even my very first job at uh, Ernst & back when it was Ernst & Winnie in Salt Lake City, we did a lot of natural resources back then, but we also did a lot of real estate. When I actually moved to the Phoenix office from National Tax, I moved in order to be in charge of the real estate tax practice. That's why they brought me out to Phoenix was to handle the real estate tax practice. Developers are a breed and I love the breed. They're very innovative. They never have money because the money's always (laughs) invested in a deal, right? But then on top of that, real estate from a tax standpoint has always been really the best tax shelter there is. And it's really the best way to, uh, the easiest way to reduce your taxes is real estate. You know, it's not for everybody but it's really the easiest way to do it. And then when you combine that with partnerships, you get some flexibility and it's just fun. I mean, frankly, it's just a fun area to practice in. I I like it. If I were dealing with big corporations, I wouldn't deal with partnerships at all because they don't do partnerships. And real estate developers, man, I was looking at a, just yesterday, Jim, I'm looking at an operating agreement. I'm going, what in the world are these guys doing here? And it's just, (laughs) they're just creative. I love the creativity of it. Well, that's great. I mean, real estate for me is is a great way. As you said, it it, it really allows you to make money and, and not pay taxes. And it does. I've listened to your podcast. I've read your book. And that's, that's why I'm so pleased to have you on here. So I'd like to just jump right in. One of the ways that, that we talk about a lot at Left Field Investors of reducing taxes is using cost segregation and bonus depreciation to offset gains from active or passive real estate investments. And I'd like to hear your take on it because when I first was selling my active real estate, I went to my accountant and I said, how can I get out of paying taxes? And he said a couple of things. One, he said, well, sometimes when you make money, you just have to suck it up and pay taxes, which was not the answer I liked. His next answer I did like, which is he said, you know, you can do this thing that he calls a lazy 1031, which is using syndications, passive syndications, the depreciation and cost segregation to offset the gains from my active investments. And so he calls it a lazy 1031. Can you talk a little bit about that as a strategy? And then also, I'm curious, because depreciation recapture on the back end is something people don't talk about enough. Can you incorporate that into into your answer? Yeah, a couple of things. First of all, I'd probably not use that wording lazy 1031 because that has nothing to do with 1031, right? So you either have a 1031 where you defer the gain 
or you don't have a 1031 where you don't defer the gain. And to me, since 2017, when we've had bonus depreciation, and typically somewhere between 20 to 25% of the cost of any real estate is going to be taken as a deduction in the first year, then a lot of times, actually a 1031 is not as good as recognizing the gain and then getting the depreciation. But there's another reason, and it's not just because they offset, it's not just because the depreciation might be higher, but remember, depreciation is an ordinary deduction. In other words, it comes off the highest tax rate. Well, whereas capital gain is taxed as low as 0%, can tax be taxed 0, 15, 20%, 24%, but it's never taxed at 37% ever. I mean, the worst that happens is you talk about recapture. In my world, the way we do things, wealthability, your highest recapture tax is going to be 28.8%. It's the 25% on the building plus the 3.8% net investment income tax. Well, you're never going to get 37%. So to me, that spread is a really big deal. So I get capital gains. Remember, when I sell a deal, you know, we have this passive investing issue that I'm sure you've talked about on your show. When I sell a deal, though, that loss that's kind of built up in there, that's no longer a passive loss. The day I sell it, it's not passive. By the way, if I do a 1031, I don't free it up. But if I free up that passive loss, that loss is coming from depreciation. Well, that can offset my W-2 income. That's 37% income. But I'm only being taxed at 20 to 25%. That's a big swing. Sometimes a seven, a 13 to 17 or percent or 18 percent swing in tax rates, even if your numbers are exactly the same. So if your losses are exactly the same as your gain, you actually lower your tax. If your losses are the same as your gain, you lower your tax because your losses are coming off your higher tax rate and your gains are at a lower tax rate. So I always say, and through next year, 2022, right, when we have full 100 percent bonus depreciation, you always have to run the numbers. Always just run the numbers. And maybe a 1031 is better for you because you've had the property for a long, long, long time. Maybe it's not. But you asked about recapture. And so <laughs> this is <laughs> a little hot spot for me because I think it's talked about too much. I don't okay. think it's not talked about not enough. Here's the thing. So recapture happens. First of all, if you hold a property for at least five years, you should not have recapture except for the building. Okay, so there's two types of recapture. There's what we call 1245 recapture, which is basically the contents or equipment, things like that. And then there's 1250 recapture, which is the building. Well, 1250 recapture is taxed at 25%. It's not taxed at 37%. 1245 is ordinary income. So you don't want 1245 recapture. So let's say if you took bonus depreciation, let's say you bought a piece of equipment, okay? Because equipment, real estate, it's all the same. You bought a piece of equipment, you paid $50,000 for it, and two years later, and you deducted the entire amount. Two years later, you sell it for $30,000. You're going to have $30,000 of ordinary income, all right? But if you sell it five years later, how much are you going to sell it for? I mean, you're going to sell it for very much after five years. And in real estate, typically, you're talking about your carpet, your indoor lighting, your fixtures, stuff like that. What's it worth after five years? I would say it's probably worth nothing after five years. And so at that point, why would you have any recapture? Because you're selling it for zero. So you can't have recapture unless there's gain. So typically, I find that except for the bonus depreciation where you're taking it and you're slipping it within two to three years, it's pretty rare you're going to see any recapture that's going to hurt you. 
who calculates the recapture? Do you have to do another cost segregation? I mean, if you're doing a, if we're talking about a syndication investment, right? I'm going to get that recapture, I assume, through the K-1. So how does that work? So it's the accountant who's preparing the K-1 that's going to calculate that. So (laughs) this is a good point you make, Jim. Not all accountants who prepare K-1s are created equal. And they don't all know real estate. They may think they know real estate. But let me give you an example. About a year ago, I get a K-1 for a client and the K-1 shows very little depreciation. And I call up the developer and I said, please let me talk to your CPA. I don't understand. So I called the CPA and the CPA says, well, we don't do cost segregations. I said, what? He said, no, we don't do cost segregations. I said, why not? Because our investors don't get the benefit. I'm going, yes, they do. If they have a good CPA, they're going to get the benefit. If not now, they're going to get it later. So to me, it verges on malpractice. Just so you know, Jim, under the law, technically, you are required to do a cost segregation. A lot of people say, well, it's aggressive. No, the law says that your basis for when you sell it is the depreciation that was allowed or allowable. The IRS could actually, if they wanted to, they won't because they've said they won't, but they could reduce your basis by the cost segregation as if you did a cost segregation, if you, even if you didn't take the depreciation. So when you make it, let's say you do a cost segregation five years down the road and you have to catch it up. That's a change in accounting method from an incorrect method to a correct method. Incorrect to correct. Not correct to correct, incorrect to correct. So what that says is that really a cost segregation is the right way to do it and not doing a cost segregation is technically the wrong way to do it. Now, when you come comes to selling the property, it's the accountant who's preparing that tax return for the partnership that is calculating the recapture, the gain and all of that. And I got to tell you, there's going to be huge differences. I'll give you one other area that you haven't mentioned, which is the repair regulations. So a lot of times you go into a syndicator will go into a new development and they do all sorts of renovations, repairs, upgrades, et cetera. A lot of that can be treated as repairs. Well, repairs are never recaptured ever. They're just not added to the basis at all. So there's no recapture at all on a repair. So you get an ordinary deduction and even if it carries over to when you sell it, that ordinary deduction becomes available the day you sell it. So you get an ordinary deduction, but when you sell it, you get capital gain, not even recapture capital gain, but regular capital gain. So we'll find sometimes in a syndicated deal, because we handle several developers, tax returns for several developers in my little CPA firm, and we'll find two, $3 million of repairs. Hmm. Well, that's money that you're either otherwise not getting a deduction for, or you're getting a deduction in such a way that might be recaptured. But as a repair, it's not recaptured at all. So the CPA preparing the syndicator's tax return that you're subject to, they make a huge difference to you. So you really want to ask the question. And sometimes it means your CPA needs to get with their CPA and say, help me know what's going on. I want to make sure I'm getting tax benefits that I think I'm entitled to. How does this work? Like, let's use an example because you know most of the people who are, who are listeners are investing in syndications. So if I'm an LP investing in a in an apartment syndication that you know does value add a typical deal, and I get some depreciation on the front end, right from the cost segregation bonus depreciation, and I get a tax loss. Let's say I invest a hundred thousand dollars and I get a thirty thousand dollar tax depreciation loss. Take me through the cycle and how does that work when then I sell the the asset and I do the recapture? How are all the taxes? If that's the only 
for simplicity's sake, that's the only thing going on in my tax return. Okay. How does it actually work? Yeah. Let's say all you had was your W-2 and then you have the syndication loss, right? And by the way, it shouldn't be 30000 It should be closer to eighty to 90000 if you do a cost segregation, just FYI, unless the syndicator is not borrowing any money from the bank, right? right? Unless they're not using any debt at all, it's going to be 80 to 90% or it should be. If it's only $30,000, that's when you have that, your CPA has that phone call with their CPA and say, what the heck's going on here? Okay. okay? But here's basically what happens. Unless you're a real estate professional and even there let's say your spouse is a real estate professional, even there, now you have a limit because you you can only deduct up to 500,000 of real estate losses against ordinary income, against your wages, only 500,000. So you're now limited. That's, by the way, that's brand new for 2021. And that's if you're a real estate professional. That's if you're a real estate professional. Now, okay. let's say you're not, okay? You're not a real estate professional. So here's what's going to happen. I'll uh, use your number, $30,000 that loss is going to carry forward. It carries forward forever. So you never lose it. When the property is sold, let's say the property sold five years down the road. Okay. And you have gain of $40,000. Okay. Here's what's going to happen. Your $30,000 loss is going to offset your wages. So let's say your wages are $400,000. So it's going to bring your wage. It's basically going to net against your wage income to $370,000. Then your $40,000 capital gain is going to be taxed at capital gains rates. So it doesn't offset the gain. Mm. What selling the property does is it frees up the loss. I keep hearing people say it's going to offset the gain. No, that's not what it's doing. It's actually offsetting your ordinary income, whichever is the highest taxed income you have. It offsets your ordinary income and then you pay capital gain on the gain. You don't have to offset your capital gain with your ordinary loss. You don't do that. Now, I, I thought real estate losses, the passive losses couldn't offset ordinary income, W-2 income. They're not passive in the year you sell the property, Jim. The year you sell the property, they're no longer passive losses. They become active losses and they're freed up to offset any kind of income. So what's the benefit then of being a real estate professional if the losses from your real estate can offset your W-2 already? Well, it's timing. So if you're a real estate professional, you get that loss the very first year. So that $30,000, if you have $30,000, say in 2021, you get a $30,000 loss to offset your wages in 2021. If you're not a real estate professional, you have to wait until the property is sold to be able to use that loss. So if the property is not sold for five years, it's just sitting there for five years, doing nobody any good. And then five years later, now you get to offset it against wages. So it's only a timing difference. That's it. Okay. And then if you have multiple syndications that you're investing in, then when you invest in a new one, what does that depreciation offset? Can that offset cash flow from other syndications, the monthly cash flow or capital gains from sales? Absolutely. So this is a a big misunderstanding in the real estate community generally. Passive losses are not disallowed. Passive losses are just a bucket and they go with a bucket of passive income. So passive losses can always offset passive income, always. And if you're a business owner, you can actually turn your business into passive income pretty easily with good advisors on your team. But let's say you're a W-2 owner, that passive loss just carries over until there's passive income. Now, here's what's interesting. So let's take your example again, the 30,000, 40,000. Well, let's say that you had, so you freed up the 30,000 right from that investment. But let's say that you have another $40,000 or $50,000 of passive losses 
over the previous five years, and it's kind of accumulated there. So now you got a total of $80,000 of passive losses. $30,000 is applying to that original investment and $50,000 for subsequent investments. But you've got gain of $40,000. What that means is, is it actually frees up the entire $30,000 plus another $10,000 of the other passive losses because the gain, and this is a mistake I see on tax returns all the time, by the way, the gain is not capital gain. It's a gain called 1231 gain, and it is passive income. So if you have $40,000 of 1231 gain from the sale of the partnership, and you have $30,000 of loss, you've still got $10,000 left over that can free up another $10,000 of passive losses to, again, offset your wage income. It doesn't offset the capital gain. It offsets the wages. And I know this is complicated and I would suggest everybody listen to this podcast over and over again because eventually it'll get through. You really have to break this down into pieces. Once you break it down into pieces, it's pretty magic. We had a client a number of years ago that the gain had been misclassified on the tax return and it had been classified as capital gain, not 1231 gain. The difference is 1231 gain is business gain that then is taxed at capital gains rates. It's not capital gain. Okay, it's just business gain taxed at capital gains rates. Well, because it'd been taxed at capital gains, they'd never freed up the losses. We freed up enough losses, it was a net tax benefit of two and a half million dollars. This is why people must understand they think that a tax preparer and a tax advisor is an expense. This is an investment that will be can provide you the best return ever if you've got somebody who really understands real estate. But Real estate's a pretty complex area in the tax law. And if you don't have somebody who can sit down and explain it to you, you're going to lose out on a lot of tax benefits. Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for TribeVest. Now, you might be thinking, why would TribeVest hire a Globetrotter? <laughs> well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at TribeVest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. TribeVest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kid's preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest's customers, just check out TribeVest's YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, head on over to TribeVest.com today. The more I understand it, the more I realize that maybe I don't. And so <laughs> I want to step back again. That's actually good news, Jim. That actually means you're smart. Well, I'm working on it. But let me understand. So again, I've always thought of the passive bucket, right, as passive loss offsets passive income. And you've said that is correct. But can you explain again how the passive loss when an asset is sold becomes active so that it offsets a W-2. That's the part that I'm confused about. So remember, you can't confuse the bucket of passive with the character of the income. The passive bucket is just, it's passive or passive. That doesn't say anything about the character of the income. A passive loss could be a capital loss. A passive gain could be a capital gain. It could be ordinary gain, right? So that's those are characters. That's not passive, non-passive. 
that's where the disconnect happens with people. So we have two types of income primarily in the US, three when you count non-taxable, but let's start with capital gain and ordinary income, okay? Well, depreciation is an ordinary deduction because your real estate is a trader business. If it weren't, it wouldn't be passive in the first place, okay? Only trader business can be passive. So it's a trader business deduction, which makes it an ordinary deduction subject to the passive loss rules. Okay. Okay, well, that an ordinary deduction offsets ordinary income. Well, your wages, for example, are taxed at ordinary income rates. Interest, taxed at ordinary income rates. Your retirement income, taxed at ordinary income rates. So when those passive losses are freed up, the way the tax calculation works is the loss offsets the highest, because it's ordinary loss, it's going to offset the highest taxed income first. If you don't have any, let's say you have no wages. Let's say all you have is gain that year. It's going to offset the gain because that's your highest taxed income. But if you have wages that are taxed at a higher rate than the gain, it's going to offset the wages. That's the character of the loss. All we're saying is that the day you sell that property, as long as you don't do a 1031 exchange, the day you sell that property, that loss is no longer in the passive bucket. That loss is now active. Even if it's through a syndication investment. It doesn't matter. That property is sold in a fully taxable sale. That is now an ordinary loss. It's an active ordinary loss. Now, the passive income, which is the gain, you can't say, well, I've got this $40,000 of gain. I freed up my $30,000, so I'm getting another $40,000 of passive loss. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. You have to offset that $30,000. You have to use that $30,000 first, but that extra $10,000 is passive income, even though it's capital gains rates, it's passive income, and it frees up another $10,000 of passive loss. So that freed up passive loss is going to be applied against your highest taxed income, not your capital gain income. You're always better off. So this is why we were talking before we started about investing through an IRA. This is why people hear me all the time say, I do not like investing in real estate through an IRA, because you lose that. You lose that differential because remember, IRA money is always taxed at ordinary income rates. And unless you're planning on retiring poor, your ordinary income rate when you retire is going to be higher than it is while you're working because you don't have all the tax deductions of your home mortgage interest and your kids and you don't have those deductions or your business deductions. And so you actually end up typically in a higher rate tax rate when you retire. So I much prefer to see investments in real estate outside of an IRA because the tax consequence is better. Now, let's say you've already funded the IRA, you got $500,000 in an IRA and you're going, do I pull it out and pay the penalty? Remember, if you don't think about the tax when you pull that money out, because you're gonna pay the tax anyway when you pull it out. It's no difference, right? It's only the 10% penalty if you're under 59 and a half, but you do pay it now, right? So you don't get to defer that tax, which there's some compounding benefit of deferring. But the reality is in real estate, you're not paying tax anyway. So why do you care? So on top of that, now in real if you have it outside the IRA, you can actually be offsetting your wage income and be paying a net less tax by investing outside an IRA than you ever would investing inside an IRA. Let's pivot a little bit to the IRA conversation because we started that off air and there was this ruling McNulty versus commissioner that changed some things, I think, or clarified some things as, as you might've said. So can you explain, you've, you've talked a little bit about why maybe real estate in an IRA isn't a great idea. I agree with that. But can you talk a little bit about 
the changes and some of the difficulties with investing through a self-directed IRA? So the term that everybody should have imprinted on their forehead is prohibited transaction. If you engage in a prohibited transaction, then your IRA gets treated as being distributed and you have huge penalties to go along with it. So you want to avoid a prohibited transaction at all costs. I mean, there is nothing good about a prohibited transaction. (laughs) The question is, what's a prohibited transaction? Well, we know that you can't borrow from your IRA. So this is self-dealing with your IRA. You can't borrow from the IRA. Well, that should be obvious. You can't commingle funds with your IRA. That should be obvious. That would benefit you. But what about if all you do is you have an LLC that your IRA owns and you're the manager of that IRA? Is that a prohibited transaction? And I think what McNulty stands for is probably yes, because what happens is, is that you are now rendering services to the IRA. Now, here's what you can do. What is clear that you can do in a self-directed IRA is you can direct the investment. Now, does that mean you could write a check to the syndicator? I think you're probably okay with that. But can you then go to the developer's annual meetings? Mm, I don't know that you can Can you have any kind of impact on real estate? I mean, for example, if you had your own real estate in an IRA, could you write a check to the property manager? I don't think so. Because what you can't do is you can't render services. And all McNulty does, I think it was long overdue. I think self-directed IRAs have been abused unwittingly by taxpayers for many, many years, and they're abused unwittingly because of the promoters. It's really the promoters that say, oh, look, you set up a checkbook IRA and you can have complete control of your IRA. That's not true. I think checkbook IRAs are incredibly dangerous because your chances of having a prohibited transaction are really, really high. Now, the question is always saying, yeah, but the IRS won't catch me. Well, McNulty, they caught him. So that's basically what McNulty stands for is the IRS is now paying attention and they're paying attention to these really, they're really abusive IRAs. They're just completely contrary to the law. We've had cases, it started with, we had a Swenson case many, many years ago We've had subsequent cases where they said, okay, for example, could you invest in a business? And they said, yeah, but it can't be your business because you can't run the business. You can't render services in the business. You can't get paid by the business. So you can't really invest in a business through an IRA or 401k. You really can't do that. Okay. That's a prohibited transaction. So people, you know, there's been a lot of promoters saying you can do this. And I think the IRS is finally paying attention to it. I, I, I think it's always been illegal. And you mentioned it, but is the is the self-directed 401k, does it fall under the same umbrella same rules. as mm-hmm. IRA? Yeah. The okay. prohibited transaction rules are exactly the same for 401ks as they are for IRAs. The primary difference, just so you know, between IRA and a 401k when you're investing, particularly in a syndication, is that a 401k doesn't get have an unrelated business income tax on the debt portion of the income, whereas an IRA does. So IRAs, to say that IRAs are completely tax deferred if you're in a syndication is erroneous. The gain that relates to the portion of the property that was paid for with debt, that's going to be taxable to the IRA. So a self-directed IRA doesn't mean you pay no tax. Okay. You also mentioned earlier the real estate professional status, and that is always something that people in our community want to talk about. So should most W-2 earners try to get their spouse to qualify or to qualify themselves if they're going to do a lot of the passive syndication investing? Or or do they even need to be a real estate professional? Is it worth 
trying to get there? Is it worth the trade-off for possible increased audit potential? What's your take on that? Yeah, I'm a big fan of it. It's pretty much a get-out-of-jail-free card. You have to document it really, really well. So by the way, you can't be a real estate professional just having syndications. You must have your own properties. You must be active in some way other than just the syndications. And that doesn't, I mean, you could be a real estate professional. By the way, you could be a real estate professional. Let's say you're a contractor. A contractor is a real estate professional if they own their business. But that doesn't mean that they still get the losses from their syndications because the syndications, your rental real estate combined has to meet the active participation rules, which is typically 500 hours of active participation. Well, participating in a syndication doesn't really qualify. Now, once you have your own properties, then could you invest in syndications and roll them into your properties as a single activity? Absolutely. Okay. In fact, the regulations are very clear on that. So if one of you can be a real estate professional, it's great. Remember again, what I said earlier though, beginning in 2021, only $500,000 of those losses as a real estate professional can offset your wage and other wage interest, dividends, and retirement income. Okay, can offset all the business income you've got, but you can't offset wages, retirement, and interest and dividend income, except for five hundred thousand. Also, another question that that came up when I when I was talking about having a conversation with you is when investing in passive syndication. Some of us invest through an LLC, and there's always the question: disregarded entity versus not disregarded entity. Some sponsors ask about it; some don't. What is the significance of disregarded entity? What happens if you get it wrong when the syndicator checks the box? How do we handle that? Well, the real question is, is the LLC an accredited investor? That's really the question. It's not actually a tax question. It's, a, it's an accredited accredi- investor question. Remember, for most syndications, you have to be an accredited investor in order to invest in the syndication. Well, if it's a disregarded entity, they're looking at you and they treat that as you And so you only have to meet the regular accreditation rules, typically accredited investor rules. If you invest, let's say it's a partnership, that's a whole different level. That's $5 million. That's not $1 million. That's $5 million. So partnerships have a different level for accreditation than an individual. I would always ask the question, why do you need to be in an LLC? It's already in an LLC. So you really don't have any risk to begin with. You're a limited partner in a limited liability company. I just can't see where you've got liability in the first place. I'm not a lawyer, so that's a lawyer question, but I just can't see why you would need to do that. The only reason you might do it is, let's say that you've got a family limited partnership and maybe a trust for your kids, trust for your wife, your trust for your husband is one of the owners. So you have multiple owners of that syndication. It's way easier for the syndicator if there's just one party which would be that partnership. But again, that's a $5 million rule, typically not a $1 million rule. Okay. Well, that, that, that helps clarify that for sure. Some of the people in our community invest through their LLCs just so they have everything, all their syndications in one separate bank account, separate bucket, you know, a business bank account, which I guess if they just, it just makes it cleaner for some of them. And, and I, I invest it through an LLC just because I already had that for my active properties and I just started investing. So there's there's no downside is what you're saying, correct? I don't see it, but I would ask the syndicator. It's really going to be what's the syndicator comfortable with? Because again, it's not a tax question. That's an accredited investor question. Okay. With passive investors investing in syndications, 
What are some common mistakes you see make regarding taxes that people make? Well, the first is they, they use an IRA. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. the most common mistake I think that people make. The second is, is that they don't force the issue on the cost segregation. I invest in syndications myself, and I'm not a real estate professional. And so I called the developer and I said, are you going to do a cost segregation? They said, well, I don't know. Next day, one of my clients calls me, says, what do you think of this investment? And I said, well, they told me that they're not sure they're going to do a cost segregation. What? And they're on the phone with them and they're after them. It's kind of like your local legislator. They got five calls. They pay attention. That's going to be the same thing with the syndicator. They got five calls. They're going to pay attention. So I think you've got to force the issue with the syndicator because right now there's so much money out there and it's so easy for syndicators to get money that they don't even care. They don't care. You know, so what that you're not getting the tax benefit? Who cares? You're getting a better return than you would in your bank account or your bond portfolio anyway. So who cares? Well, the difference is like, it like doubles your investment return <laughs> to get the tax benefit. One of the big mistakes is for particularly for those, and I know a lot of your listeners are W-2s, but for those who can be business owners, you can always create passive income if you have a business. It's just a matter of ownership. You just have somebody else own it that's not an active participant in the business, and you have that same entity, it's typically going to be a trust, is going to own the real estate. And guess what? Now your losses offset your income currently. That's a huge mistake I see. What's interesting is I've talked to several really top-end tax and estate planning attorneys who go, I've never heard of such a thing. And I'm going, it's not that hard. It's just not that hard. When I explain it to them, they go, oh yeah, you could do that. And I'm just like, well, why isn't everybody doing it, right? Because the key to real estate investing is get your money now because you want to put more money in. The reason you want your tax benefits now is because that's money that you can use for more investing and you can just keep doing it. It's a cycle. It becomes what I call a positive addiction, right? You have to keep doing it. Otherwise you get hit with tax. Now you're addicted to not paying tax. So you have to keep investing. Well, that just builds your wealth more. So it's, it's basically a positive cycle of investing and tax benefits. And I find that serious real estate investors who have good real estate CPAs, after two or three years, they stop paying tax and they will never pay tax again. If we have, we have listeners who have tax accountants who are doing their taxes every year, how do they know? How do they check to make sure that they're getting all of the benefits that they should be getting, that their taxes are being done correctly? Because obviously it's super complicated, right? For someone like me to look at all the different syndications I'm in, all the different investments I'm in, and to know, are my taxes being done sufficiently for us, for me? So let's say you go to the doctor and you get a prognosis. How do you know the doctor's right? Second opinion. Exactly. So that's what you do. It's a second opinion. And that's actually what we do at WealthAbility for people is we'll actually give you a second opinion. We'll look at that tax return and we'll say, looks like you're doing great. No problem. You're good to go. Or we'll say, hey, you know, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. And then you really have a choice. And, and the reason we created our network of CPAs because we wanted to give people a choice. If they think their CPA is never going to be able to figure this out, come join one of our CPAs. If they think, you know what, I've got a great CPA, they just need to learn this, then send your CPA to us and we'll train them. So we don't care whether you send your CPA. Most of the CPAs in our network came from their clients. Their clients told them that, first of all, they gave my book. 
said, you got to read this book. And then while they said, okay, now you need to go join Tom's network. Quick, funny story. So I have a client, his family has a CPA firm and he came to me because he wasn't getting the tax advice that he needed. So I went through this whole strategy. We saved him hundreds of thousands of dollars in the first few months. It took him about three years. He finally convinced his family CPA firm to join our network. <laughs> They've joined our network now, but it, <laughs> we don't care. But one way or another, get that second opinion. Get another CPA who you know is a good real estate CPA that you trust is a good real estate CPA. And we will do that for free. We don't charge for that review. We'll take a look at it. If we think there's a way we can help you reduce your tax further, we'll let you know that. If we don't, we'll let you know that too. That's fantastic. The last question I, I ask in the in the podcast is, other than your own, because I'll put that in the show notes anyways, what's a great podcast or a favorite podcast that you listen to, whether it's tax-related, real estate-related, business-related, just something that you like to listen to? I have to say it's The Rich Dad. It's going to be Robert Kiyosaki's podcast. Actually, I'm going to give you two, if that's okay. I'd give you Robert's, but also Patrick Pet David. I don't know if you know Patrick Bet David. He's a YouTuber. He has got like 3 million followers. He's a great interviewer and he has absolutely great guests on his show. I'm fortunate enough to have been one of those guests, but he has terrific. I mean, really, his shows are amazing, but Robert does too. Robert has some amazing guests on his show and those are probably the two that I pay the most attention to for sure. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. I'll put those in the show notes. And then the last thing is, how can listeners get in touch with you? And if they want to get a checkup from WealthAbility, how do they go about doing that? So just go to WealthAbility.com and you'll click right on the button there that says uh, schedule a call. And you can actually go in and schedule a call right then. So you're going to upload your tax returns confidentially to us. They're going to be secure and we have complete confidentiality. So we're never going to tell anybody except for you know, if you decide to hire a CPA in our network, then we'll, of course, we'll pass them on to that CPA with your permission. But that's the easy way. Just go to wealthability.com and schedule a call. Okay. Well, th this has been fascinating. I hope you'll agree to come on again, because as you said, I'm going to have to listen to this a couple of times to make sure I got everything. <laughs> and then I'm going to have some more questions and I'm sure our listeners will as well. So we'll have to get you on for another podcast. But thank you so much for being here. This was absolutely fantastic. Absolutely. Happy to do it, Jim. All right. Thank you. Wow. I'm not even sure where to start with that. That was a, a lot of information and really enjoyed talking to Tom. He just he knows so much about taxes. And every time you talk to me, learn something and possibly even unlearn something, which is what happened today. I had no idea. We talk so much about W-2 and how that is active, ordinary income, and, and you can't offset any of the passive stuff against it. But Tom kind of uh, threw all that out the window and, and gave you uh, an idea of that, you know, when you sell an asset, that the passive loss becomes the depreciation becomes active when it's sold. And you can use those losses to offset the ordinary income, which again, I had no idea. I'm still processing it and trying to figure that out. So that's kind of interesting. And then the new IRA rules, it seems like they're the, the new ruling is going to make it even tougher to make sure that you're in your lane, not doing those prohibited transactions. And he also seemed to think that in not in obviously you have to check your own individual case, but in many cases, it might make sense if you're really getting into this real estate stuff just to cash out your IRA because you're going to have to pay the taxes eventually. But as, as he said, as Tom said, you'll never have to pay taxes on that money again. So why keep accumulating that tax burden that's going to be probably at a higher tax rate 
down the road. Just get rid of it now, put it into your um, taxable bucket, and then you can start in, in investing in real estate and really move forward with it and never pay tax on that again. So this is one of those podcasts where I am definitely going to have to listen to it over and over again to make sure I understand it. I will definitely have Tom on again, and hopefully we'll get some additional questions from listeners. And I think this is the kind of thing where, you know, you just need to keep listening and keep trying to understand. And I think it's a great idea to get a second opinion, right? Take your tax return and send it over to WealthAbility or to any tax accountant that you know and say, hey, what do you think? And see what they say and see if they have changes they can make and that they can make it better and communicate that back to your accountant. So again, this was a really eye-opening podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.